Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and education. Today's topic is Forget the Two-State Solution. Our speaker is Elliot Abrams, who is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Elliot served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for George W. Bush, where he supervised U.S. policy in the Middle East for the White House, and as Special Representative for Iran and Venezuela for Donald Trump. I want to learn from Elliot why the Biden administration and European leaders are pursuing a two-state solution after the violence of 10-7. The Israeli public has abandoned the idea of Palestinian state for over a decade because of their fear of ongoing terrorism. So I wonder why this idea is still the objective for the end game. Buckle up. Elliot, can you please begin with your opening six-minute remarks? In recent weeks, we've heard a lot about the two-state solution. We've heard Saudi Arabia demanding it, the Europeans demanding it. More importantly, we've heard President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken demanding it. In fact, Blinken talked of an irreversible, time-bound path to a Palestinian state. I think this is all very, very unwise. People have been talking about a Palestinian state for 30 years, since 1993, the Oslo Accords. Why hasn't it happened? The first thing to say is there are some really deep and intractable problems that have existed from the beginning and that still do. For example, Jerusalem. You're going to divide Jerusalem again? Is that really a smart thing to do? Where would you draw the border? What is the border of this Palestinian state? What about in the West Bank? The last negotiations saw the Palestinians saying that Ariel, a town of 20,000, would have to become part of Palestine. Really? There's a second problem that didn't exist in the 90s, Iran. Iran has essentially taken over Yemen, Iraq, Lebanon, Gaza. You know that if there was a Palestinian state created, they would try to take it over. It would be an incredibly juicy target for Iran in its efforts to destroy Israel, to destroy the Jewish state. Who would prevent them? People say, well, no, you don't understand. The West Bank, Palestine now would be demilitarized. It won't have an army. Who's going to police that? Who's going to prevent that Palestinian state from importing weaponry? You're going to have a situation like that which existed in Germany after the Versailles Treaty, where everybody in the population was very much opposed to the demilitarization that had been forced upon them. Why is it that nobody ever talks about democracy? People talk about how Israel has to be a Jewish and democratic state. They don't talk about Palestine being a democratic state. Why is that? Well, one reason, okay, is that there is no democratic Arab state. Not one. Not one. So people might think, well, that's a little bit too much to ask for. But I'll give you another reason. The last time there was an election, a majority voted for Hamas. That was in 2006. Popular vote was 44% to 41%. Hamas over Fatah. And the public opinion polls today suggest that 
Hamas would have an even greater victory. That points to a real problem with Palestinian public opinion. Maybe that voting pattern is because Palestinians do want to destroy the state of Israel. That is, Palestinian nationalism is not fundamentally about building a state of their own. It's fundamentally about destroying the Jewish state. I think people who are more or less casually saying, we want an irreversible path, time-bound. In other words, it doesn't matter what happens along that path. It doesn't matter what Iran does. It doesn't matter how much violence there is. It doesn't matter if it looks like that state will be a Hamas state. Irreversible, time-bound. I can hardly believe, actually, that Secretary of State Blinken believes what he was saying, because all previous efforts at Palestinian statehood have said that there would be significant conditionality. So I think the way it is being talked about and the ultimate idea are really dangerous to Israel, favors to Iran, and therefore not in the interest of the United States. You started with Oslo. You were a member of George W. Bush's administration working for the National Security Council, and you worked with both the Palestinians and the Israelis to come up with a roadmap towards a Palestinian state. And in the roadmap, the first step was to abandon terror. We've just, as of October 7th, entered into a new scale of terror. Wouldn't that suggest that we've diverged away from the roadmap or abandoned it? Why skip the roadmap now that terror has been escalated? Yes, I agree with that. You know, the official formal name was, quote, a performance-based roadmap. And as you say, the first step was the elimination of terror. And this is at a time when Arafat is leading the Palestinian Authority. Today, he isn't. And today, you have a Palestinian Authority that actually does try to prevent Hamas terrorism in the West Bank. But we're talking about a Palestinian state. And again, we have very good reason to believe that majorities of Palestinians would vote for Hamas. So how can you create a state that is going to have a majority that is pro-Hamas, that may even have a Hamas government, and then say, but of course, we're all against terrorism. I mean, it just, it doesn't work. It's completely illogical. Step three of the roadmap was Hamas rejecting the idea that Israel does not have a right to exist. Yet you've just mentioned that the Palestinian people, the majority thereof, would say that Israel does not have a right to exist. So this is another key part of that roadmap. Why is it in Israel's interest or our interest to abandon the key planks to the roadmap? It's not. You can argue that, well, the roadmap, you know, that's literally 20 years ago and times have changed. But I don't think the fundamental conditions have changed. You know, in 2006, after Hamas won this election, there were real efforts, particularly by the Europeans and the Russians, to get them to say the magic words that Israel has a right to exist. They had to say they were abandoning terrorism and they accepted Israel's legitimacy, Israel's right to exist. They would not do it because they don't believe it. What you're suggesting, and I think it's right, is we need to go back to basics here. 
you can't promote the creation of a Palestinian state that is going to be a permanent enemy of Israel's and whose basic purpose isn't really even Palestinian nationalism. It's the destruction of the state of Israel. In your book, you discuss Ariel Sharon and his desire for peace. And when he couldn't find a peace partner, he decided to act unilaterally and exit Gaza. Lessons learned from October 7th was the unilateral abandonment of Gaza was a failure. I don't think it was a mistake for Israel to leave Gaza. You had something like 7,000 settlers in the middle of what was then, I don't know, 2 million Palestinians who were tying down a significant part of the IDF guarding them. There were mistakes in the way it was done, and there have been mistakes since then. At the time, we in the U.S. government said to Sharon, you should coordinate this with the Palestinian Authority, partly to try to prevent Hamas from taking advantage. He didn't want to. He said, look, politically, I'm being killed here. I need to show I'm not doing this for the Palestinians. I'm doing it unilaterally. It's for me. It's for Israel. Don't talk to me about Palestinians. And there was no coordination, which led a year and a half later to the Hamas coup in Gaza. But that's a long time ago. I mean, that's 2005. Sharon then did make one other mistake. He said, once we get out, we're not going to tolerate any rockets or missiles or attacks coming out of Gaza. Nothing. But there were attacks coming out of Gaza. And Sharon had a stroke that completely immobilized him and he was out as prime minister. But in those few months, he and the government of Israel did tolerate these attacks coming out of Gaza, rather than a very big response that would have taught the lesson, nothing will be tolerated. More recently, the Israeli government, and this is left-wing governments, right-wing governments, and the Mossad, and the Shin Bet, and the IDF all thought they had a kind of modus vivendi with Hamas. They were going to let Hamas rule Gaza, and in exchange for that, Hamas was kind of tamed. And while it might try to create violence in the West Bank, where it didn't have to govern, it wouldn't try to create violence or disorder coming out of Gaza into Israel. And on October 7th, Israelis learned, and we all learned, that that was completely wrong. There was an expectation that Gaza, if it was allowed to be self-run by Hamas, that Gaza wouldn't be militarized. We now know that, in fact, Gaza was militarized, that the defense mechanisms that were put in place were insufficient. We had a podcast with Aitan Shamir, who was an Israeli strategist, military strategist. He said that we didn't mow the grass. We didn't enter Gaza from time to time and clean up and become more aware of what was going on there. Obviously, going forward, we're going to have to mow the grass more often. But this idea of a Palestinian state would not allow for mowing of the grass. It would establish more sovereignty than exists in Gaza before October 7th. How is this idea of either unilateral abandonment of Palestinian areas or allowing for increased sovereignty consistent with either mowing the grass or prevention of military buildups? It isn't going to work. That is, mowing the grass is not possible with a sovereign, independent Palestine. If the Israelis cross the border, that is, under international law, an act of war. 
so the idea of mowing the grass only works if you've got a territory that is not a sovereign state. The Israelis knew, for example, that Hamas was trying to smuggle in weaponry. There were tunnels from Egypt. They knew that. They patrolled in the Mediterranean along the shores of Gaza because they knew there were big Iranian efforts to smuggle in arms. I think they didn't know the scale of it. Nobody knew. But I think what they've learned this time is that mowing the grass doesn't work when you're dealing with a group whose goal is to do what these people did on October 7th. So it means for one thing, the Israelis thought they had some degree of control of that border. The Egyptians were helping. We now know that a lot more got in. There's no solution to Gaza. There's no end to the war without closing down the Gaza-Egypt border in a way that it has never been closed down. You mentioned in your opening remarks that after the First World War, the Allies demanded a demilitarized Rhineland, and the French put great comfort in it. They were the ones most concerned about that. But then when Hitler moved into that area, the French didn't do anything. And in the post-war analysis, some historians felt that if only France had invaded at that period, that would have really curbed Hitler's later ambition. I don't know if it's a debatable point or not, but it does show that even if you were to create demilitarized zones around certain Pacific areas, that when push comes to shove and war is the only option, it doesn't really work. How do you feel about demilitarized zones? The Israelis are creating a buffer zone. And the goal there is really just to give them more early warning if Hamas is going to try to come across the border. If you want people to move back, Israelis to move back to those kibbutzim near the border, they have to have a greater feeling of security. And a piece of that is more of a buffer. Then there's the broader question, which is raised by the Rhineland example, of demilitarization and the enforcement of it. Because the question back in the 30s, when Hitler took power, was who's going to enforce this? And the French, in the end, didn't, partly because they had no support. That is, was the U.S. going to help? Were the British at that point going to say, yes, let's do it? Let's take on Germany? I think that is analogous, because if you imagine that there's an independent, sovereign Palestinian state, and the Israelis are saying, they're arming, and we're going to go in, we're going to cross that international border, would they really have support from the EU? Would they have support from Washington? Probably what would happen is people would say, don't do it, let's negotiate, let's have a UN Security Council session, let us send a special envoy, don't start a war. That is exactly what happened in the 30s, and it led to the Second World War. And I think we see even now, right now, when the Israelis are trying to recover from October 7th and defeat Hamas, you had a few days ago the foreign minister of the EU suggesting that the United States and other countries should stop giving military aid to Israel to force them to end their war against Hamas. That's the world we live in. And that's why I think this idea of demilitarization is not going to work in practice. You suggested that U.S. support for Israel is waning. One of the arguments 
about the EU is that there's now a substantial Muslim population in England and in France. In every democracy, parties just get to the majority to govern. The United States is no different. I've read articles that Michigan could be the key state and Arab Americans living there would not support the Biden administration and Biden, as a result, may be caving for that reason. How will domestic Arab support for governments change the calculus today or in 25 years relative to when you were in the Bush administration? All these countries are democracies and therefore people who are elected to Congress or to Parliament reflect the voters who sent them there. Now, the Arab population in the United States is quite small and a very substantial portion of it is actually Christian, not Muslim. Europe has a very different situation where uh, there are a number of countries that are 10 or 20 percent Muslim Arab, and they feel very strongly about the Palestinian question, and they are extremely hostile to Israel. I mean, I remember when I was in the Bush White House going over with then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice to London, and we met with Jack Straw, who was the Labor Party foreign secretary at that time, increasingly critical of Israel as the years went by. Why? Pure demography in his constituency. A greater and greater and greater percentage of the voters there were Muslim. You see this all over Europe. And in the United States, we have just begun to see a small amount of it. In Michigan, they have a right to vote any way they want including to pressure their senators, their representatives, their president, to take an anti-Israel position. Whether there'll be more of that, I think, depends on immigration patterns in the United States. In Israel itself, the country had been split between hawks and doves, between those who were seeking peace with the Palestinians and those that were seeking peace to strength, if you will. Starting with the Intifada, the peace now movements in Israel have declined. I think with October 7th, those peace movements are dead in the water. Yet, the expectation of the Western diplomats who suggest the two-state solution are assuming that there is Israeli domestic support for such an activity. It seems to me that there is now no domestic support for a two-state solution in Israel. Do you agree? If there is, it's very, very thin. Those kibbutzim on the border of Gaza were, in fact, left-wing peacenik kibbutzim. I visited Kfar Aza, which is one of those kibbutzim. And the woman who guided me around had lived there. And her husband used their family car twice a month to ferry Gazan children from the border to Israeli hospitals for treatment for things like cancer. And she said to me, this is almost an exact quote, we tried to save their children and in exchange, they tried to kill our children. That's why there's no support for the two-state solution. That's why the Israeli left has been cut probably by 95%. This is a mistake on the part of Secretary Blinken. They seem to think they have a Netanyahu problem. They don't. On this point, 
the question of a Palestinian state, there would not be a different policy if Benny Gantz replaced Netanyahu. And the Israeli population sees a Palestinian state today as a real danger, but something else. It would be a reward for terrorism now. Hamas attacks in October and murders 1,200 people. And the result is everyone says, oh, better create a Palestinian state. What better argument for terrorism would you have than that? My friend Peter Gadoff shared with me a tape from his recent visit to Israel with the Miami Beach United Jewish Appeal, where they met with local Israelis. I'm going to now play a clip from that discussion with a woman who lives in a kibbutz near the Gaza Strip. My name is Zohar. I'm a member of Kibbutz Re'im in the Shkol Regional Council. I'm a social worker by profession. And I think one of the saddest things that happened on October 7th is that we realized that even though our area is mainly people who are pro-coexistence and pro-Palestinian rights and went to demonstrations and drove Palestinian families from the border crossing to hospitals in Israel, this was the area that was most hurt. And the people who did these things go to demonstrations and speak out for the Palestinian rights, these were people who were burnt alive, mutilated, butchered, kidnapped. We always ached for the Palestinian people under the Hamas regime. Every time there was an escalation, we were thinking about them, that they don't have secured rooms, they don't have the IDF. We even thought about building a school together for the children of Eshkol and the children of Gaza. But I don't know how to rebuild this. I don't know how to remain their neighbor. We don't have, we don't inspire to erase them. We have to rethink this neighborhood, this relationship. And being a social worker, losing this empathy, losing this ability to see the other side, it's painful. It's really painful. And it took such a terrible, terrible, terrible situation to happen. We needed to bring in archaeologists to sieve through the ashes to find their remains. Okay, these were people that fought for the Palestinians. I have no words to even try to understand it. We all want to have good neighbors so that we can invest in each other's kids' education build a hospital together, provide goods and services for each other. But if you're going to kill my family, then we can't be neighbors. We need to separate and prevent ongoing violence. The slaughter of 10-7 is incompatible with a Palestinian state. I think that's right. And it goes back to this question of what do Palestinians want? Palestinians did not want to permit the formation of a Jewish state. Once it was formed, there has been 76 years of effort to destroy it. It hasn't been about building a beautiful, democratic, prosperous Palestine. It's been about killing the Jewish state. Immediately after October 7th, the Israelis taped certain phone calls between some of the terrorists and their parents. The most striking one was one son calling into his parents, Dad, Dad, Ma! I just killed seven Israelis. 
all right, son, that's enough, come home. How could that have happened? It is the product of a generation of Hamas control of Gaza. The young man who did that has been educated and raised in Hamastan, that is, a Gaza controlled by Hamas. So what has he been taught? He's been taught that the Quran tells you to kill Jews. The prophet tells you to kill Jews. He's been taught that those who kill Jews are heroes. Even in the West Bank, they name schools and parks and plazas after terrorists who murdered Jews and are honored for doing it. He is the product of a society and an education that has promoted treating Jews as not fellow human beings, but as objects that need to be gotten out of the way and killed. Before 1967, Gaza was under the control of Egypt. During that 67 war, the decision was made to take Gaza away from the Egyptians, you know, along with the Sinai, etc. So the Egyptians have controlled Gaza before. We have a humanitarian crisis right now. There was some expectation that the Egyptians would help out in this crisis, but they've done everything in their power to prevent Palestinians from crossing into Sinai. They said that if Israel continues, that they will abrogate their Camp David peace treaty. Why is Egypt behaving this way? Are they going to be a good partner in this war? What should we want from the Egyptians? In terms of Egyptian popular opinion, they're not in love with the Palestinians. The government of Egypt, which is a dictatorship, does have to worry about public opinion, which is, again, very hostile to Israel. They don't want Palestinians, Gazans, coming into Egypt. First of all, because it's a burden. Who's going to feed them? Who's going to educate them? Secondly, they fear they would be people who support Hamas, maybe even terrorists. Remember that Hamas is part of the broader Muslim Brotherhood movement that the government of Egypt overthrew. So the last thing they want is Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers coming into Egypt. And again, they do worry about terrorism as well. The Egyptians have set up, for example, a tent city for about 10,000 people, humanitarian gesture, on the Gaza side of the border, not the Egypt side of the border. They don't want Palestinians coming into Sinai. They are really not lying when they say they're very worried about an Israeli military move in Rafah, because what they're afraid of is that 150,000 Palestinians will just rush the border and they'll be in Egypt. Where I do think Israel and Egypt have a common interest is they do oppose Hamas, they do oppose Iran, and I think they will be able to cooperate better on closing the border. The Jordanians controlled the West Bank until 67. And there is a substantial Palestinian population that lives in Jordan. A Palestinian terrorist tried to assassinate a king in Jordan. So they're very concerned about local political violence there. How do you think about the Jordanian support for a two-state solution? I've been very unhappy with the posturing of the government of Jordan during this war, which has really been terrible, inciting against Israel and using words like genocide. Now, I understand that part of it is politics. That is, again, it's not a democracy, but the king does have to worry about public opinion. 
And the population is more than half Palestinian in origin. So I get that. But I still think he should be more responsible in his language. Now, there was a point at which Prime Minister Begin wanted to give Gaza back to Egypt and the Egyptians wouldn't take it. I think a lot of Israelis would love to give most of the West Bank to Jordan. At least for now, the Jordanians won't take it because, you know, the king is being very careful not to rile up his population. And he does not want to have to rule another couple of million Palestinians. The idea would be, well, if you took them into Jordan, then you'd have a tremendous majority of Jordanians who'd be Palestinian in origin. Jordanians would not want that at all. The essence of your opening remarks is the diplomatic bromide two-state solution. And this isn't the first time that diplomats have simplified a tremendous global problem with three words and just said this is the answer without any real thought in sympathy for the bromides. This had been something that many American administrations had encouraged and diplomatically asserted to its allies that this was the path. These ideas became commonplace among domestic politicians, among academics, among Middle East professional thought makers in Europe and the United States. And any centrist would say, of course, the end result would be a two-state solution. Yet the facts on the ground drifted away from the two-state solution more than a decade ago with no change in the diplomatic bromides. Why is that? Why haven't those people who are advocates for the two-state solution done some self-reflection once the domestic Jewish population in Israel decided this no longer made any sense? Why the failure to recognize that a two-state solution is not the solution? That is a very good question. There was a point at which I think a majority of Israelis would have said this is the answer, the two-state solution. Back at Oslo, say 30 years ago, many Israelis thought it would work. So why has there not been a change? Partly because of the left-right split in Israel. That is, for a long time, there was a substantial peace camp in Israel. People in the West, in Europe and the U.S., got used to thinking Enlightened progressive Israelis are for the two-state solution, bad right-wing Israelis are not. That has changed in Israel, starting with the Intifada and now particularly after October 7th. Very few Israelis still believe in the two-state solution. But in the West, people haven't adjusted, not even now. For Israelis, it's life and death. For Israelis, it's whether people are going to come across the border and kill my parents, kill me, kill my children. For politicians in the West, it's, okay, Israeli-Palestinian problem, intractable, what do I say? I have to make a speech. Two-state solution. Nobody yells at you. In Europe, you know, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the Americans say. The failure to look more deeply at this and realize that it is not a workable solution on the part of U.S. officials since October 7th really is irresponsible. I think what's happening here is particularly in the State Department. You know, the Near East Bureau is continuing to spew out the same analyses that it has been using for 76 years. And I think that's what's influencing the Secretary of State, unfortunately. Going back to the 
bromide by Blinken that we want to choose a solution time-bound. This was not made by an irrelevant EU diplomat. It was made by our most senior secretary of state who has spent the last four months shuttling back and forth between the United States and Israel. He's not ignorant. He is highly educated and has had talks with the most senior members of Israeli leadership from every conceivable party, I imagine. How and why is he misreading the Israeli government and public so wrong? Those were prepared remarks. He wasn't in a press conference where, you know, he made a little mistake with language, overshot the mark a little. He read that. That was in a prepared speech. So the question then becomes, well, who prepared it? And I think that's the answer to your question. That is, this is the voice of the Near East Bureau. This is the voice of the permanent bureaucracy. This is really the State Department speaking as it has spoken year after year after year. My criticism of Secretary Blinken would be, stop listening to them. Take some other advice. What is the end game? I'm going to give you two answers to your question. The first answer is, that's a very American question. Americans want to fix things. If there's a problem, there needs to be a solution. Well, the second answer is the idea of partition was correct. That is, it's not going to be a one-state solution. That's ludicrous. It was ludicrous before October 7th. Now, Israelis will think you're insane if you propose that they be in the same country with Arabs, Palestinians for trying to kill them. If partition is right, then you're going to have a Palestinian entity. My view of it is, and I wrote this after leaving the White House in 2009, that the only safe way to do this is that that Palestinian entity, I'm thinking about the West Bank, would be in some kind of confederation with another country. There are two candidates, Israel and Jordan. Why does it make sense for it to be in a kind of confederation with a Hebrew-speaking Jewish country rather than a Muslim, Arabic-speaking, half-Palestinian country? Makes more sense. As I would see it, you'd have a king, one king, maybe two prime ministers, two parliaments. Now, is that going to happen now? No. Is it going to happen 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Maybe, because I think the logic for it is very strong. An independent Palestinian state is too dangerous. But there is going to be separation. There's going to be a Palestinian entity. Sooner or later, I think, it will be affiliated with Jordan. In preparation for this discussion, I decided to read a book about the peace in Northern Ireland. And what the agreement said was that Northern Ireland would be currently managed by the United Kingdom. But if a majority of people changed their mind, it would be ruled by the Republic of Ireland. And that the Irish state agreed with that, that the British government had agreed with that, and that the people of Northern Ireland would accept that as a principle. Is that what you're talking about? Actually, I would draw a different analogy first, and that is no agreement was possible until the IRA terrorism was defeated. And the way it was defeated was by cutting it off. That is, the British fought against it, but it was important that the Republic of Ireland and outside supporters like Tip O'Neill and people in the U.S. cut off 
entirely the IRA and the flow of arms. One of the problems here is Iran. We've got to cut off the supply of arms or Hamas will regenerate and will be in a position to do it again. Northern Ireland, it's not going to be a country. It's going to be part of England or it's going to be part of Ireland. And I am saying that this Palestinian entity in the West Bank ultimately is going to be in a kind of confederation with another country. And the logical country is Jordan. Looking forward 19 years, are we fighting the same battles? A couple weeks ago, I mentioned I had Aitan Shamir on, and he made a comment similar to yours about how Americans are looking for solutions or an end of the warfare. He says, from an Israeli perspective, there are only two scenarios. There's low-intensity violence and high-intensity violence, and we hope for low-intensity violence. I want to be an optimist here. The critical change that has taken place between 2005 and now is a terrible one. It's the massive Iranian support for Hamas. The critical change that might take place between now and 19 years from now would be the fall of the Iranian regime. I think that'll happen someday. Question is, is it five years or is it 25 years? If you think of a Middle East without the Islamic Republic, with a democratic Iran that's trying to be a decent country, Iraq changes, Yemen changes, Syria changes, Lebanon certainly changes, they're not supporting Hezbollah. The Palestinians change. This massive outside support for Palestinian terrorism is gone. If the outside support for Palestinian terrorism ended, it might be possible to finally persuade Palestinians to try to build their own society rather than trying to kill Israeli society. To paraphrase Koswitz, he says that war is just a means towards a diplomatic endgame. What happened on October 7th? There must have been an idea if we invade, butcher, kill thousands of Israelis and take hundreds of them kidnapped, there's going to be a response. And the response was, if we're not going to release these hostages, the Israelis are going to continue to pummel us day after day after day. Why does that make sense for Hamas to have Gaza destroyed without exchanging the hostages? There is a theory that it was what you might call catastrophic success. That is, that they figured they'd take 10 hostages and then negotiate as they have in the past and get hundreds of prisoners out. But take it for what it is today. They may get a prisoner exchange they're asking for one in which they get 1,000, 1,500 prisoners, including murderers. That would be an achievement for Hamas. They also, it is argued, wanted to put the Palestinian issue back at the center of world attention. They have. And they wanted to hold up or destroy the idea of a rapprochement between Israel and normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. They wanted to block or delay that, and they seem to have done that. This works as an explanation if you assume that they do not care at all how many Palestinians die, how many Palestinians are wounded, how much of Gaza is destroyed. If they cared, they wouldn't use Palestinians as human shields, which is their fundamental concept of warfare. Palestinians are expendable. 
there to die to protect Hamas. So they don't care about that. I'll end this episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the strength of Israeli society, the way in the face of this horrible devastation on October 7th, people have drawn together. The army has drawn together. The society has drawn together. The political system is working. And they'll have an election at the end of the year. Israel has shown remarkable strength. The way the IDF is functioning in Gaza is extraordinary. And I think a number of American experts have noted that, for example, the percentage of civilians versus terrorists killed is much, much better than the United States attained in Iraq. The Israelis are trying really hard, though they get no credit for it. The IDF has performed extremely well in Gaza. So I would say I am optimistic about Israel. Thanks to Elliot for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was increasing anti-Semitism on college campuses. Our speaker was Gary Saul Morrison, who's the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities and Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Northwestern University. Saul's work ranges from literary theory, the history of ideas, and the relation between literature and philosophy in the works of Chekhov, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy. So I'll explain what is driving the current wave of anti-Semitism and why it is so universal. Sadly, intersectionality has been interpreted to mean that Jews are the oppressors. So I'll also discussed why organizations like Queers for Palestine are mobilizing people even though Hamas condemns homosexuality. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails, and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.